Take your Bibles, turn them just back a little ways in the book of Romans. This morning we will be continuing our study of Romans chapter 5. Now, last week we began looking at the first section of Romans chapter 5, and this morning we'll finish our study of those first 11 verses. Now, as we turn back there, perhaps remember last week how Paul moves forward in this long letter at this point, right at the beginning of chapter 5. Like Up until this point, he's pretty much been explaining and arguing for the main claims of the gospel that he goes around preaching everywhere. Especially that anyone, anywhere, can be right with God, be declared right with God by trusting in Christ. I mean, that's This is an amazing thing that he spends four chapters explaining that we need that good news and that that good news is true. That God will grant you right standing with himself as a free gift if you'll just trust what he's done for you through Christ. But when you come to the fifth chapter, Paul's no longer trying to argue or prove those things. Instead, he starts to build on what he's already proved. And specifically, he starts to connect those precious truths of the gospel to real life. Like, what is life like now for a person who has been declared right with God? Paul begins the chapter by pointing out three blessings of being right with God. You can see it, Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. We'll read this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There you have it. Three blessings of being right with God. Peace with God. Or as Paul will say later in this same section, we've been reconciled to God. The hostility has ceased. The war is over. Once we were enemies, now We are friends. Second, we have access into grace, a kind of grace you can stand in. We've gained entrance into a new place, a new realm where grace reigns, where we live and move and have our being under the smile and favor of a good and gracious king. And third, we have hope of the glory of God, confidence that one day, someday, we will all share in the glory of our Savior. Or as Paul says later, the hope that one day we will be glorified. That one day our our Lord Jesus will come from heaven to be reunited with us. And that one day these lowly, mortal, dying bodies will be flung aside in exchange for bodies that are just like his glorious body. This is a sure and certain hope for every Christian, a hope so solid and so settled that it gives us solid and settled joy. And it is the last of these three, the hope of future glory, that is really the main topic of the rest of this section. Because in in Paul's thinking, the future of every Christian is a reason to rejoice. 
But the time for joy isn't only when we're thinking of what is to come. That day when these days of hardships have become distant memories. Now for the Christian, there's reason for joy if you're right with God, even now, in the middle of the suffering. Look at Romans 5, verse 3. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in, or boast in, or take pride in our sufferings. Not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the the prospect of life beyond the grave, free from sin and suffering, we also can rejoice even now in the midst of our sufferings. Do you agree with that? Is that really true? How can that be true? And of course, Paul was not unfamiliar with suffering. In fact, if you know anything about his life, it's fair to say that Paul was acquainted with hardship and pain to a degree that most of us will never know when you consider all that he went through. And yet he says that there is reason for joy if you're right with God, even in that why? How is that true? I want to I keep chasing these thoughts a little more. Just, just think about this, for example. What is, what is one of the biggest things you are looking forward to about the day when Jesus comes? Or maybe you could, could change the scenario here a little bit. Okay, think, let's suppose you are with a loved one who knows the Lord Jesus, but who is really ill, perhaps even on the verge of dying. What is one promise of scripture that you would definitely want to share with them? Wouldn't you want to remind them of the hope of every Christian that on the other side of the veil, on the other side of death, there is life, rest, peace, and freedom from all pain, sickness, and sorrow? I hope you would want to share that. There's no doubt this is one of the greatest aspects of our hope, to be free one day from suffering. That's a reason for joy. But here's the thing. Paul goes further than just saying we can rejoice in hope of that day. He says in this verse, we can rejoice even now in the sufferings that we're going through, but how? Or maybe a better question, why? Why is this the case? I want to see if you can follow this chain in the text. Look at verse 3 again, and we'll read, we'll read on. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Now that thinking right there is strange. And it is uniquely Christian. Could you follow the reasoning? Why can those who are right with God rejoice even in suffering? It's because we know that the sufferings we face, if we'll respond rightly to them, will produce something in us that we cannot get in any other way than through suffering. What is that? Suffering produces endurance. If if we'll submit to God and trust him through the suffering, we will come out on the other side different. 
You see, God builds a kind of endurance and strength in us through hardship that we cannot get in any other way. And it's hard for me when I, when I read this not to think of another book that I really like in the New Testament. What, maybe it comes to your mind, like how, how another letter in the New Testament opens with this very thought. Can you think of which letter that might be? It's the letter of James, right? Or maybe remember how he opens the letter. He writes to suffering Christians. And what does he say at the very beginning? He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. But, But in our text, Paul doesn't stop here with endurance. As God strengthens our faith and builds up our endurance, what does this then lead to in the text? What does he say? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. So going through suffering builds up our endurance, and that endurance leads to proven, tested character. Or as James might say in his text, going through these experiences makes us more complete people, more mature, he might say. Or put simply, these hard experiences, if we'll submit to what God wants to do in us, will lead us to be made more like Jesus. And think about it. Isn't that what our future hope is all about anyway? Isn't our hope all about sharing in the glory and likeness of Jesus, of looking just like him. God's already started that work. In fact, from the very moment he declared you right with himself, God has been on a mission to make you like Jesus. And how does he do it? Of course, God does this in many ways. But one indispensable way that God does this in each of our lives is by bringing us not around suffering, but bringing us through it. The suffering leads to endurance. The endurance leads to proven character, more and more Christ-likeness. And then here's the question. Think of your own experience. What, What does this gradual transformation of your life, what does seeing that leads you to have more of. Look back at the text. Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What is it that gives us greater assurance that one day, someday, we will be fully made like Jesus? We could probably answer that in many ways. But right here, what gives us greater assurance that God will someday, one day, make us fully like Jesus. What is it? It's seeing God already doing it. Making us like Jesus, step by step, even now. It gives us greater assurance that he will not stop short. He'll take us all the way to glory. See, Brothers and sisters, we are not all that we should be. I know I'm not, and neither are you. But we are certainly not what we could be. 
apart from Christ. And more than that, we are not what we were when we came to know Christ. God doesn't save anybody to leave that person the same as when he found them. God saves us to change us, and he's already on the move, already working on us. How? It's not the only way. One indispensable way God shapes us into what he saved us to be is through suffering. And so what does knowing this give the Christian the ability to do? We don't just rejoice in our future when there'll be no more suffering. We can rejoice even now in our suffering because God's at work to make us stronger, to build our character, and to deepen our confidence that one day he'll finish what he started. Now, I love verse 5, where Paul says, and that hope does not, will not, put us to shame. Now, there, there may be times of humiliation and of shame for God's people here. There may be times of being rejected, being held up in disdain here. That is certainly true for brothers and sisters all over the world, even today. And it is becoming more and more of the case in our own land. But the hope we have will never put us to shame. On that final day, it will not disappoint. God will not let us down. The hope you stake everything on, the hope you cling to and proclaim to others in the midst of your suffering, can you imagine getting to the last day and having that hope let you down? Having God let you down? Paul says we can be sure that this will never happen. Our hope will not disappoint. God will never let us down. Paul is sure of this, but are you? Are you sure? How confident are you that God will not let you down in the end? Do you ever doubt? I mean, some might say, especially in our culture, how, how can you or anyone really know? This is what Paul goes after the rest of the text in one of the most beautiful texts in the Bible. How do we know that our hope will not disappoint? That God will not let us down in the end? Look at verse 5. It says, And hope does not and will not put us to shame. How do we know? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If someone asks you, how can you be so sure that your future is secure? I think you could answer that in, in several ways. But one answer you could give okay, from the, the verses before would be to say, well, I already see God at work in my life. I already see him changing me, and so this gives me hope that it'll do. That would be maybe from the verses before this. But from this verse, verse 5, how do you know what would be a good answer? How can I be so sure? It's because I know deep in my heart that God loves me. 
And I don't say this because I'm arrogant or because I deserve anything, but, but you could say I'm confident of my future because I know in my heart that God loves me. And since I know that he loves me, I just don't doubt him. I know he will not let me down. I think this is the way the argument goes. And, and I also think that at first it might surprise us. That Paul would put such emphasis on the experiential, internal awareness that we have that God loves us. But look at the verse again, verse 5. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit who's been given to us. And pay careful attention to what he says. Paul doesn't say in this text that we are sure of the future because God has poured out his Spirit into our hearts. Though that is true, and he says that kind of thing elsewhere. He does say later, even in Romans, that that God's gift of the Spirit to us now is like a, is, is like a down payment or a, a first installment of a future inheritance. And, and so that's true that God's poured out His Spirit in our hearts and that gives us assurance that we'll one day be glorified. But that is not exactly what He says here. He doesn't emphasize here in this text how God is poured out his spirit into our hearts. What does he emphasize? He emphasizes how God has poured out his own love for us into our hearts through the spirit whom he's given to us. He's made us aware internally through the Holy Spirit that he actually loves us. This is one of the greatest ministries of God's Holy Spirit. God's spirit assures us internally, that God actually loves us. He affirms in our hearts what old Saint Augustine once said, that God loves each of us as if there's only one of us. Now, we know from the Bible that this is true. I could point you to text, and I can tell you in a sermon that this is true, and I do, But I also know this, that it is only the Holy Spirit who can bring this good news home to your heart. It is God's Spirit who pours out God's love into our hearts. It is God's Spirit alone who sheds abroad the knowledge that God actually loves us. Paul knows this. This is why if you look at how he prays in other texts, he prays like in Ephesians for God's spirit to give us the strength to be able to comprehend the love of God, to be able to to know the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. Like I can say God loves you, and I do say it because I know he does, But it's only when God's Spirit brings those words home to your heart that you ever find rest in the love of God. Do you know that God loves us? Do you know that God loves you? If you do, then you know 
He'll never let you down in the end. Paul grounds our hope first in our experience of the love of God and how the Spirit fills up our hearts with the assurance that God really loves us. But lest we think that God's love is merely subjective or that God's love is somehow not grounded in like real life, we have to read on because Paul wants to take us somewhere. He wants to show us a place because there is a place where we can always go to see and remember just how much God loves us. And Paul wants to take us there. Verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There is a place you can always go to see the love of God. The lengths to which he would go to rescue you. You can always go to the cross. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's spirit doesn't give us pleasant feelings about some nebulous deity having like warm feelings towards us. The love of God is grounded in real life action. It's grounded in the cross of Christ. And what God's spirit does for us is he opens our eyes and our hearts to see that what Christ did there long ago, he did for us. That's what God's spirit does. He he assures you that what Christ did there, he was doing for you. Do you believe that? And just to be clear, how how shocking was it what Christ did? Notice what Paul says. Christ did what he did while we were still weak. He didn't die on the cross for, for the strong and competent. He died for the weak and needy. But not just that, Christ died in the text for the ungodly. The depth of the love of God is shown in the kind of people Christ died for. Look at verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm sure Paul says you might hear of somebody somewhere laying down his life or her life for someone else. It's possible, it's rare, but it's possible. Very rarely, you know, someone would be willing to do that, maybe for a decent person, a righteous person, or, or perhaps if, if that somebody was really, really good, maybe somebody who had done a lot for you, meant a lot to you, maybe somebody would lay down their life for somebody like that. But the truth is, even if that happened, we would be stunned by the love even if we thought the person was worthy. But this is the shocking nature of the love of God. God did not do that. He did not find the righteous or the good. And he certainly did not find the people who had first done something for him. Now, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
We were not righteous people. We were not good people. Christ did not die for us because we were either righteous or good. Christ died for us because we were neither righteous nor good. This is the measure of the love of God in Christ for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we were not asking for this. It's not like we repented first and said we were sorry and we were just pleading with God, please find a way to forgive us for all the horrible stuff we've done against you. No, we were weak, ungodly, unrighteous sinners. We were not looking for God. We weren't even wanting God at all. And yet at that very time, Christ died for us anyway. This is the love of God in Christ for you. But God's Spirit has to take that and drive it home to your heart or you won't really believe it or rest in it. But Paul's not finished yet because he has, he has one more connection to make between what God did for us back then and our future. Because this text is really all aimed at the future. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? There's the turn in the argument. Did you catch the connection? Paul's coming full circle in this text. Making the connection between the cross and our future. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved one day by him from the wrath of God? This is a specific kind of argument Paul is making. From the greater to the less. Okay, it'd be like me saying on an absolutely frigid February morning in Minnesota. You know, if you can handle the weather here this morning in Minnesota, you could definitely handle the winter weather in Hawaii. What is the point of that kind of argument? If you can handle the harder, surely you can handle the easier. Now think about, look at the verse again. This is the kind of argument. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? If the cost of our right standing with God was the blood of Jesus, and if Christ was willing to shed his blood for us back then, to make us right with God, how much more confident can we be that it will save us in the end from the wrath of God? If he was willing to do that for us in the past, do you think he'll really stop short of saving us in the future? But in case you don't get what Paul's saying, he says it again in a different way in verse 10. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son... How much more, now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life? You see, if God was willing to send his son to the death for us while we were still his enemies, now that we're his friends, how much more will we be saved by his life? If God was willing and able to do the harder, surely God will do the easier. And if Jesus himself was willing to die for us to pay the penalty for our sins when we were his enemies. Now that he's alive and risen, do you think he'll really fail to save his friends in the future? As Paul says in Romans 8, 30, 34, which was read earlier today, who's ever going to be able to condemn us? No one. 
since Christ Jesus died. But not only that, since he was raised, and not only that, since he lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God. So Paul concludes in Romans 5, 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. So you think about the text as a whole, there is joy for the Christian as we think of our future hope. There's joy for the Christian even as we walk through suffering. And more than anything, there's joy for the Christian in God. A God who sought us and bought us, who loved us then, loves us now, and will still love us tomorrow. There's joy in God all through Jesus, who's brought us back to God. The unifying theme of the whole text is one word, the word hope. And so as we close, I, I just want to put before us some simple challenges in regard to hope. The first is that whatever it takes, we need to think more about the hope of glory. I've often said that one of my regular struggles throughout my Christian life has been that I tend to think of my hope or my future about as often as I'm talking about it. What I mean by that is that when I'm reading or teaching a section of the Bible that talks about hope, I think about it and I'm encouraged by it. But once I'm away from it, it's so easy to get caught, so caught up in the here and now and the many busy things of life that I can lose sight for a long time of what ought to be part of my daily meditations, the hope of glory. How much would it, how much would it have impacted your, your daily stress levels, your anxieties, your sufferings, your conflicts of the last week, which are typically not even about that important of stuff. If we could just simply live consistently in the light of the hope of glory. And perhaps one practical thing I would recommend is to start praying with our future hope front and center. Maybe that would help. Like You can pray for the same things that you prayed for last week. But try to pray not just with today in view, but with the future day of Christ in view. If you look at the prayers in the New Testament, this is how many, many of the saints of old prayed, with the day of Christ in view. Second, I want to challenge us, as God opens doors for us, to talk with others who don't know Christ yet about the hope we have. If you say, Paul, what's an unbeliever like? One of his most basic descriptions of somebody who doesn't know Jesus is that's a person with no hope. And I think we can all testify that this world often seems like a pretty hopeless place. But hope is one of the defining marks of the Christian. And when's the last time you talk with somebody about the hope you have? As I mentioned last week, Peter thought that would be something that comes up to the point where, where you might have some people asking us, give me some reasons for the hope you have. Third, I want to challenge us in our conversations with each other. In our homes, here at church, 
small groups, to remind each other of the hope we have, of the hope we share. I was thinking of Ephesians. Paul says there's, there's one body, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope to which we've all been called. Let's remember, hope isn't just important to share with the dying. Hope is vital for the living. And lastly, I want to remind us of the unshakable ground of our future hope, which is nothing more and nothing less than the love of God. Maybe this morning, maybe for the first time ever, or maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe God's Holy Spirit has been bringing home the love of God to your heart. If you're not trusting in Christ, come to him today. See the love of God for you in the death of the Christ. Turn to him and be saved. Or if you're a believer, but you've been struggling with the love of God for you, I've been praying for you that God's Holy Spirit will pour out in your heart once again a new and fresh awareness of the love of God for you. Not just for people in general, but for you in particular. And if you're ever struggling with doubts about the love of God, there is one place you can always go back to. One place that stands as the ever-present display of the love of God for us. We can always go back to the cross. And I'd encourage you, let the table bring you back there this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your boundless love shown to us in the cross of Christ and brought home to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. I pray that we will leave this day stunned, gripped by your love, resting in it as we head into the week in front of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.